Chapter Four, Ivanhoe. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Kristen Lemoyne, GreenKRI.com. Ivanhoe, by Sir Walter Scott, Chapter Four. With sheep and shaggy goats the porkers bled, And the proud steer was on the marble spread. With fire prepared they deal the morsels round, Wine rosy bright the brimming goblets crowned. Disposed apart, Ulysses shares the treat, A trivet table and ignobler seat. The prince assigns. Odyssey, Book Twenty The prior aimer had taken the opportunity afforded him of changing his riding-robe for one of yet more costly materials, over which he bore a cope curiously embroidered. Besides the massive golden signet-ring which marked his ecclesiastical dignity, his fingers, though contrary to the cannon, were loaded with precious gems. His sandals were of the finest leather which was imported from Spain. His beard, trimmed to as small dimensions as his order would possibly permit, and his shaven crown concealed by a scarlet cap, richly embroidered. The appearance of the Knight Templar was also changed, and though less studiously bedecked with ornament, his dress was as rich, and his appearance far more commanding than that of his companion. He had exchanged his shirt of mail, for an under-tunic of dark purple silk, garnished with furs, over which flowed his long robe of spotless white in ample folds. The eight-pointed cross of his order was cut on the shoulder of his mantle in black velvet. The high cap no longer invested his brows, which were only shaded by short and thick curly hair of raven blackness, corresponding to his unusually swart complexion. Nothing could be more gracefully majestic than his step and manner, had they not been marked by a predominant air of haughtiness, easily acquired by the exercise of unresisted authority. These two dignified persons were followed by their respective attendants, and at a more humble distance by their guide, whose figure had nothing more remarkable than it derived from the usual weeds of a pilgrim. A cloak or mantle of coarse black serge enveloped his whole body. It was in shape something like the cloak of a modern hussar, having similar flaps for covering the arms, and was called a sclavine, or sclavonian. Coarse sandals bound with thongs on his bare feet. A broad and shadowy hat, with cockle-shells stitched on its brim and a long staff shod with iron, to the upper end of which was attached a branch of palm, completed the palmer's attire. He followed modestly the last of the train which entered the hall, and observing that the lower table scarce afforded room sufficient for the domestics of Cedric and the retinue of his guests, he withdrew to a settled place beside and almost under one of the large chimneys and seemed to employ himself in drying his garments, 
until the retreat of some one should make room at the board, or the hospitality of the steward should supply him with refreshments in the place he had chosen apart. Cedric rose to receive his guests with an air of dignified hospitality, and, descending from the dais, or elevated part of his hall, made three steps towards them, and then awaited their approach. "'I grieve,' he said, "'Reverend Prior, that my vow binds me to advance no farther upon this floor of my father's, even to receive such guests as you and this valiant knight of the holy temple. But my steward has expounded to you the cause of my seeming discourtesy. Let me also pray that you will excuse my speaking to you in my native tongue, and that you will reply in the same if your knowledge of it permits. If not, I sufficiently understand Norman to follow your meaning. Vows, said the abbot, must be unloosed, worthy Franklin, or permit me rather to say, worthy Thane, although the title is antiquated. Vows are the knots which tie us to heaven. They are the cords which bind the sacrifice to the horns of the altar, and are, therefore, as I said before, to be unloosed and discharged, unless our holy mother church shall pronounce the contrary. And respecting language, I willingly hold communication in that spoken by my respected grandmother, Hilda of the Middleham, who died in odour of sanctity. Little short, if we may presume to say so, of her glorious namesake, the blessed Saint Hilda of Whitby. God be gracious to her soul. When the prior had ceased what he meant as a conciliatory harangue, his companion said briefly and emphatically, I speak ever French the language of King Richard and his nobles. But I understand English sufficiently to communicate with the natives of the country. Cedric darted at the speaker one of those hasty and impatient glances which comparisons between the two rival nations seldom fail to call forth. But, recollecting the duties of hospitality, he suppressed further show of resentment, and motioning with his hand, caused his guest to assume two seats a little lower than his own, but placed close beside him, and gave a signal that the evening meal should be placed upon the board. While the attendants hastened to obey Cedric's commands, his eye distinguished Gurth, the swineherd, who with his companion Wamba had just entered the hall. "'Send these loitering knaves up hither,' said the Saxon impatiently. And when the culprits came before the dais, how comes it, villains, that you have loitered abroad so late as this? Hast thou brought home thy charge, Sir Agert, or hast thou left them to robbers and marauders? The herd is safe, so please ye, said Gurth. But it does not please me, thou knave, said Cedric, that I should be made to suppose otherwise for two hours, and sit here devising vengeance against my neighbours for wrongs they have not done me. I tell thee, shackles and the prison-house shall punish the next offence of this kind. Gurth, knowing his master's irritable temper, attempted no exculpation. But the jester, who could presume upon Cedric's tolerance, by virtue of his privileges as a fool, replied for them both. In troth, Uncle Cedric, you are neither wise nor reasonable to-night. How, sir? said his master. You shall to the porter's lodge and taste of the discipline there if you give your foolery much license. First, 
let your wisdom tell me, said Wamba, is it just and reasonable to punish one person for the fault of another? Certainly not, fool, answered Cedric. Then why should you shackle poor Gert, uncle, for the fault of his dog Fangs? For I dare be sworn we lost not a minute by the way, when we had got our herd together, which Fangs did not manage until we heard the vesper bell. Then hang up Fangs, said Cedric, turning hastily towards the swineherd, if the fault is his, and get thee another dog. Under favour, uncle, said the jester, that were still somewhat on the bow-hand of fair justice, for it was no fault of Fangs that he was lame and could not gather the herd, but the fault of those that struck off two of his foreclaws, an operation which, if the poor fellow had been consulted, he would scarce have given his voice. "'And who dared to lame an animal which belonged to my bondsman?' said the Saxon, kindling in wrath. "'Mary, that did old Hubert,' said Wamba. "'Sir Philip de Melvoisin's keeper of the chase. He caught Fang strolling in the forest, and said he chased the deer contrary to his master's right as the warden of the walk.' "'The foul fiend take Melvoisin,' answered the Saxon, "'and his keeper both.' I will teach them that the wood was deforested in terms of the great forest charter. But enough of this. Go to, knave, go to thy place. And thou, Gert, get thee another dog, and should the keeper dare to touch it, I will mar his archery. The curse of a coward on my head, if I strike not off the forefinger of his right hand. He shall draw bowstring no more. I crave your pardon, my worthy guests. I am beset here with neighbours that match your infidels, Sir Knight, in Holy Land. But your humbly fare is before you. Feed, and let welcome make amends for hard fare. The feast, however, which was spread upon the board, needed no apologies from the lord of the mansion. Swine's flesh, dressed in several modes, appeared on the lower part of the board, and also that of fowls, deer, goats and hares, and various kinds of fish, together with huge loaves and cakes of bread, and sundry confections made of fruits and honey. The smaller sorts of wild fowl, of which there was abundance, were not served up in platters, but brought in upon small wooden spits or brooches, and offered by the pages and domestics who bore them to each guest in succession, who cut from them such a portion as he pleased. Beside each person of rank was placed a goblet of silver. The lower board was accommodated with large drinking-horns. When the repast was about to commence, the major-domo, or steward, suddenly raising his hand, said aloud, "'Forbear! Place for the Lady Rowena!' A side-door at the upper end of the hall now opened behind the banquet-table and Rowena, followed by four female attendants, entered the apartment. Cedric, though surprised, and perhaps not altogether agreeably so, at his ward appearing in public on this occasion, hastened to meet her, and to conduct her with respectful ceremony to the elevated seat at his own right hand, appropriated to the lady of the mansion. All stood up to receive her, and, replying to their courtesy by a mute gesture of salutation, she moved gracefully forward to assume her place at the board. Ere she had time to do so, the Templar whispered to the prior, 
I shall wear no color of gold of yours at the tournament. The Chien wine is your own. Said I not so? answered the prior. But check your raptures, the Franklin observes you. Unheeding this remonstrance, and accustomed only to act upon the immediate impulse of his own wishes, Brian de Bois-Gilbert kept his eyes riveted on the Saxon beauty, more striking, perhaps, to his imagination, because of differing wildly from those of the eastern sultanas. Formed in the best proportions of her sex, Rowena was tall in stature, yet not so much as to attract observation on account of superior height. Her complexion was exquisitely fair, but the noble cast of her head and features prevented the insipidity which sometimes attaches to fair beauties. Her clear blue eye, which sate enshrined beneath a graceful eyebrow of brown, sufficiently marked to give expression to the forehead, seemed capable to kindle as well as melt, to command as well as to beseech. If mildness were the more natural expression of such a combination of features, it was plain that in the present instance the exercise of habitual superiority, and the reception of general homage, had given to the Saxon lady a loftier character, which mingled with and qualified that bestowed by nature. Her profuse hair, of a color betwixt brown and flaxen, was arranged in a fanciful and graceful manner, in numerous ringlets, to form which art had probably aided nature. These locks were braided with gems, and being worn at full length intimated the noble birth and free-born condition of the maiden. A golden chain to which was attached a small reliquary of the same metal hung around her neck. She wore bracelets on her arms, which were bare. Her dress was an undergown and kirtle of pale sea-green silk over which hung a long, loose robe, which reached to the ground, having very wide sleeves which came down, however, very little below the elbow. This robe was crimson, and manufactured out of the very finest wool. A veil of silk, interwoven with gold, was attached to the upper part of it, which could be, at the wearer's pleasure, either drawn over the face and bosom after the Spanish fashion, or disposed as a sort of drapery around the shoulders. When Rowena perceived the Knight Templar's eyes bent on her with an ardour that, compared with the dark caverns under which they moved, gave them the effect of lighted charcoal, she drew with dignity the veil around her face, as an intimation that the determined freedom of his glance was disagreeable. Cedric saw the motion and its cause. "'Sir Templar,' said he, the cheeks of our Saxon maidens have seen too little of the sun to enable them to bear the fixed glance of a crusader. "'If I have offended,' replied Sir Brian, "'I crave your pardon—that is, I crave the Lady Rowena's pardon, for my humility will carry me no lower.' "'The Lady Rowena,' said the prior, "'has punished us all in chastising the boldness of my friend, let me hope she will be less cruel to the splendid train which are to meet at the tournament. Our going thither, said Cedric, is uncertain. I love not these vanities which were unknown to my fathers when England was free. Let us hope, nevertheless, said the prior, our company may determine you to travel thitherward, 
when the roads are so unsafe, the escort of Sir Brian de Bois-Gilbert is not to be despised. Sir Prior, answered the Saxon, wheresoever I have travelled in this land, I have hitherto found myself, with the assistance of my good sword and faithful followers, in no respect needful of other aid. At present, if we indeed journey to Ashby de la Zouche, we do so with my noble neighbour and countryman, Athelstane of Konigsberg, and with such a train as would set outlaws and feudal enemies at defiance. I drink to you, Sir Prior, in this cup of wine, which I trust your taste will approve, and I thank you for your courtesy. Should you be so rigid in adhering to monastic rule, he added, as to prefer your acid preparation of milk, I hope you will not strain courtesy to do me reason. Uh, nay, said the priest, laughing, it is only in our abbey that we confine ourselves to the lac dulce, or the lac acidum, either. Conversing with the world we use the world's fashion, and therefore I answer your pledge in this honest wine, and leave the weaker liquor to my lay-brother. And I, said the Templar, filling his goblet, drink wasai to the fair Rowena, for since her namesake introduced the word into England, has never been one more worthy of such a tribute. By my faith I could pardon the unhappy Fortigern, had he half the cause that we now witness for making shipwreck of his honour and his kingdom. "'I will spare your courtesy, Sir Knight,' said Rowena with dignity, and without unveiling herself, or rather I will tax it so far as to require of you the latest news from Palestine, a theme more agreeable to our English ears than the compliments which your French breeding teaches. "'I have little of importance to say, lady,' answered Sir Brian de Bois-Gilbert, "'excepting the confirmed tidings of a truce with Saladin.' He was interrupted by Wamba, who had taken his appropriated seat upon a chair, the back of which was decorated with two ass's ears, and which was placed about two steps behind that of his master, who, from time to time, supplied him with victuals from his own trencher, a favour, however, which the jester shared with the favourite dogs, of whom, as we have already noticed, there were several in attendance. Here sat Wamba, with a small table before him, his heels tucked up against the bar of the chair, his cheeks sucked up so as to make his jaws resemble a pair of nutcrackers, and his eyes half shut, yet watching with alertness every opportunity to exercise his licensed foolery. "'These truces with the infidels!' he exclaimed, without caring how suddenly he interrupted the stately Templar. "'Make an old man of me!' "'Go to, knave! How so?' said Cedric his features prepared to receive favourably the expected jest. "'Because,' answered Wamba, "'I remember three of them in my day, each of which was to endure for the course of fifty years, so that, by computation, I must be at least a hundred and fifty years old. "'I will warrant you against dying of old age, however,' said the Templar, who now recognized his friend of the forest. I will assure you from all deaths but a violent one, if you give such directions to wayfarers as you did this night to the prior and me. How, sirrah! 
said Cedric. Misdirect travellers! We must have you whipped. You are at least as much rogue as fool. I pray thee, uncle, answered the jester, let my folly for once protect my roguery. I did but make a mistake between my right hand and my left, and he might have pardoned a greater who took a fool for his counsellor and guide. Conversation was here interrupted by the entrance of the porter's page, who announced that there was a stranger at the gate, imploring admittance and hospitality. "'Admit him,' said Cedric. "'Be he who or what he may, a night like that which roars without compels even wild animals to herd with tame, and to seek the protection of man, their mortal foe, rather than perish by the elements. Let his wants be ministered to with all care. Look to it, Oswald." And the steward left the banqueting-hall to see the commands of his patron obeyed. End of chapter 4